calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 40 Project Report. Yes, Jonathan Knox had worked it out all right. What would the Shadow KGB do with a time machine? The key lay buried in a rumor about murder and mayhem at a very exclusive Moscow hospital two decades ago, a rumor Knox had first heard from a Russian gypsy cab driver. Despite its lowly origins, the insight was having a gratifyingly major effect. The scene in Naftalus's passenger cabin took on the aspect of a single moment frozen in time. No one moved. No one spoke. Still life, with mouths agape. Then everyone began shouting at once. Pete bellowed, What the fuck is that supposed to mean? He was all but drowned out by Grecian. This is an internal matter of interest solely to the peoples of the Russian Republic and of no concern to the international community whatsoever. That foxy-faced midget who'd locked horns with Grecian earlier on, Karpinsky or something, was back on his feet, spewing out recriminations. The rest of the comrade director's kangaroo council contented themselves with muttering incoherently, like an aphasic Greek chorus. Knox paid no heed to the hubbub he'd raised, time enough for that in a bit. For the moment, he just basked in the warmth of Mariana's astonished smile. Silence! Grecian fairly shrieked. He whirled to face Aristos in his videoconf window. This changes nothing! Your sole duty here, Mr. Aristos, is to verify the terrible power that my associates and I now wield. To that end, you will receive Miss Bonaventure's report no later than one hour after our arrival. I recommend you consider it carefully. Until then, I insist that you hold at your ten-mile perimeter and, to use an Americanism, that you get out of my face! Speaking of faces... Mariana wished she had an 8 by 10 glossy of the look on Grecian's when John had pulled that latest rabbit out of his hat. You just had to love the guy. Pete was talking to her. Mariana? Um, sorry, Pete. She turned back to her boss's grainy image. Listen, I've got to make a judgment call here. You're the AIC of record. Like it or not, I've got to factor in your input. 
She looked over to where Grecian and his minions were staring at her, waiting. Was she really supposed to discuss the disposition of a case in the presence of the perpetrator? Didn't seem like she had a whole lot of choice. Okay, sure. Just bear in mind we've got an audience. Makes no never mind. I've only got the one question. Go ahead. Is this stuff for real? Real as it gets, I guess. It's what I was trying to tell you yesterday. Seeing his frown, she hastily added, Look, Pete, it'll only cost you an extra hour to find out for sure. There's no way Grecian can get out from under the hammer in that amount of time. It's not a whole lot to ask, if you think about the downside. She held her breath. Pete hadn't wanted to think about the downside before, and who could blame him? End of the freaking world? Please, let him think about it now. The silence stretched on. Mariana looked away from the flat-screen display, looked out one of the forward viewports. There was nothing to be seen, though. The two vessels hung suspended in deepest indigo, bordering on utter black, falling together through limbo. Okay, Pete said finally. His gaze shifted then and locked on Grecian. You've got your hour. The clock starts ticking as soon as you dock. And one more thing. Yes, Mr. Aristos? When this is all over, I get my people back, good as new. You fuck with them, I will personally carve you a new asshole. That understood? I believe we understand one another perfectly. Pete cut the transmission without another word. That went about as well as might be expected, Grecian thought to himself. Well, comrades, he said aloud, reseating himself behind the big desk. We have the better part of an hour remaining before our arrival at Antipode, and, as Pyotr Filipovich reminded us earlier, our departure from Rusalka was too uh, hectic to allow for the Council's scheduled consideration of our final project report. I move we take up this agenda item now. You cannot be serious, Grishin, Karpinski had remained standing. Surely you do not propose to discuss affairs of such sensitivity in their presence? He waved a hand at the two Americans. Permit me to point out, Pyotr Filipovich, Grishin said, that Mr. Knox has just now demonstrated he knows most of these affairs already. Which reminded him, Mr. Knox, I confess to being curious myself as to how you learned of our ultimate intentions. Not as curious as I am about how you've been tracking us ever since we left Rusalka. Ah, as to that, once Yuri had alerted me to the likelihood of Krom's involvement, we employed, or more properly, will have employed, some rather extraordinary means at our disposal to establish your whereabouts. Now, as to how you penetrated our security... I'd say extraordinary means about covers that one, too. The woman smiled at this last remark. No matter. Grecian dropped the subject and turned to face the council again. As regards Pyotr Filipovich's objection, the terms of our uh, arrangement with Mr. Aristos dictate that we conceal nothing. The plain and simple truth is our best ally. He could hardly believe he'd said that. He had detested Gorbachev's disastrous policy of glasnost 
of openness, and history had borne him out. Yet, Sasha had been right about the effect of a full disclosure regarding Vordelach. Very well, then, for as long as it served his purposes, he would play at being this curious creature, this new, open, Arkady Grecian. And in that spirit, he turned to the Americans, it is time I properly introduced myself. He couldn't very well bow sitting down, but he straightened in his chair and inclined his head. Mstislav Platonovich Gromov, Colonel, KGB, at your service. The woman, Bonaventure, knit her brows in concentration. Then she gasped, Of course, you were Shabarshan's protégé. He made you deputy director of foreign intelligence when he moved into the top slot in 1988. No wonder we couldn't match you back to the old KGB. That's one amazing job of plastic surgery. Thank you. I am quite pleased with it myself. Grishin stroked his cheeks and chin. Some of my colleagues here did not fare nearly as well under the knife, in my opinion. Bonaventure's eyes grew wide. Wait a minute. You're dead. Shot during the 91 coup. Not quite dead, though I still carry a fragment of that bullet lodged in my skull. The surgery in question was reconstructive in intent, but it seemed a shame to waste the opportunity to uh, put a new face on things, so to speak. Mstislav Platonovich, huh? Knox said. Listen, I'm just going to stick with Arkady Grigorievich, if you don't mind. One first name plus patronymic per person is about my limit. As you wish, Mr. Knox, Grishin nodded agreeably. Truth be told, he'd grown used to the pseudonym himself, to living within the legend, like any good undercover operative. And, while we are all being so convivial, we may as well see to your comfort. I think you will find these chairs will afford you a better view. Yuri? His face an expressionless mask. The Georgian installed first the man, then the woman, in two of the armchairs adjoining Grishin's desk. Grishin glanced down and frowned. Yuri, be so kind as to remove Mr. Knox's handcuffs. Turning to the woman, he said, I regret, Miss Bonaventure, that you are a bit too uh, formidable to extend you a similar courtesy. He smiled at her apologetically. She grimaced in return. However, he went on, I can offer you one small amenity, in view of the fact that our discussion will be in Russian. Sasha, would you mind serving as interpreter for Miss Bonaventure? Grishin waited while Sasha changed places. Then he placed his hands together in an attitude resembling prayer and said, Let us begin. Knox watched the wall-mounted display behind Grishin's desk come to life. A single image filled the fifty-inch screen, the wizened corpse of an elderly man lying in state, coffin all trimmed in red, an enormous hammer and sickle as a backdrop, honor guard to left and right. We start, Grishin said, by returning to that pivotal moment in Soviet history, which Mr. Knox alluded to earlier, to February 9th, 1984, to the sad day when Soviet Premier and former Chairman of the Committee on State Security, our Yuri Vladimirovich Andropov, died. 
of renal collapse, according to our official pronouncements. Though, as always in such cases, it proved impossible to prevent rumors from circulating. Knox nodded. I remember those rumors. They must have peaked just around the time I got to Moscow. I was barely off the plane before I started hearing all about how Andropov had been murdered. Those same half-remembered rumors had helped weave the pattern he'd first glimpsed back at Weathertop. A lot of it was just plain weird, though, he went on. Death by knitting needle, or some such. Heard that one from the cab driver on the way in from Sheremetyevo Airport. And that wasn't even the strangest part. It was Grishin's turn to nod. The self-immolating assassin. I guess you must have taken that same cab ride sometime. A melancholy smile flitted across Grishin's face. No, Mr. Knox, I did not need to hear this tale at second hand. I was there. The display now held an image of a lavish hospital suite with a clunky-looking dialysis unit against one wall and a still figure, recognizably the man from the funeral scene, lying on a cot. A banner at the bottom of the frame proclaimed Sovershena Sikretno, Top Secret, all in red. Grishin leaned back in his chair and contemplated the image in silence. The council seemed equally rapt. The only sound in the cabin was the occasional groan of metal as Naftalus shouldered the Atlantic's ever-increasing weight. When Grishin resumed speaking, addressing the council now, his voice was slow and solemn. I stood in Yuri Vladimirovich's hospital room that dreary February morning, saw with my own eyes what Mr. Knox has called a knitting needle, stood at the foot of Yuri Vladimirovich's deathbed and beheld the smoldering corpse of his murderer there on the floor beside him. The camera now panned down alongside the bed to reveal... I say corpse, Grishin's voice dropped to a whisper. But in truth, what remained of the assassin's body bore no resemblance to a human being, living or dead. It was merely a single long, fine strand of protoplasm, burnt to a crisp. It took an electron microscope to confirm its human origin. To the unaided eye, it looked more like a heap of charred spaghetti of the very thinnest kind. A self-destruct that turns a person into angel hair pasta, Knox said. This was grotesque, but then he'd expected no less of Arkady Grigorievich. How? Ah, if we only knew that, Mr. Knox, Grishin sighed and shook his head. I will not deny it. Long after we had abandoned the goal of unmasking the assassin's co-conspirators, we continued our investigation solely in hopes of recovering that miraculous device. Then, as now, we could have put it to good use. I'll bet Knox could picture KGB hit squads roving the back streets of the world's capitals, transforming enemies of the people into primo piatto at a blast from Grecian's magic vermicelli gun. But Grecian was rattling on. Rivals in the apparatus, here he paused to look meaningfully at the little guy he'd called Karpinski, had engineered my appointment as chief investigator, trusting that I would fail. In that, they were not disappointed, not 
for the longest time. It seemed hopeless after all. KGB 9th Directorate had followed prophylaxis SOPs to the letter. No human soul could have entered that facility undetected. And, press them as we might, none of the guards would confess to having seen a thing. All we had to go on was the murder weapon itself. This. He punched a combination into a keypad and pulled open a drawer. He reached in and withdrew a long, twisted metal shape, set it down carefully on the surface of the desk. This is the actual implement that pierced our Yuri Vladimirovich's heart that winter day in 1984. On it are inscribed what appeared to be words. Don't trouble to strain your eyes, comrades. The writing is warped beyond all recognition, as if this object had been through the fires of hell. Grishin quivered minutely, momentarily caught in the grip of some disquieting inner vision. Only much later would we come to realize how close that metaphor was to the literal truth. Even so, with the aid of ultraviolet illumination, X-ray microscopy, various other techniques, a dismissive shrug, Grishin was not a technology guy, suffice it to say we managed to decipher the inscription. It read, Tunguska Cosmologist 7, 1989, support. Grishin held up his right hand, four fingers raised. Four words, only four. Rather cryptic for a claim of responsibility, if that was the intent. Doubtless there had been no room for more on the object's surface. Still, four clues. Tunguska? Grishin ticked off the first of the four fingers. A tired smile tugged the corner of his mouth. We knew where that was well enough. We instituted the appropriate inquiries in that hellhole, searching for any trace of an aboriginal nationalist movement with the wherewithal to have perpetrated this outrage. We found nothing. Nothing smelling of an assassination plot against the premier, in any case. Counting off the second finger now. That left cosmologist as the only other substantive clue. Over the next 18 months, until that ingrate Gorbachev shut down the investigation, we interviewed any number of researchers, eventually getting around to our young friend Sasha here. You know, comrades, Grishin mused, in some ways that aspect of the investigation was even more bizarre than tracking down leads through the wastes of Siberia had been. Quasars, big bangs, heat death of the universe, that slight quiver again. But in any case, it too only led to a dead end. As to support, not to mention 7-1989, which we took to be a calendar notation, well, where could we turn? Grishin appealed to his audience. Support for what? And when? In July of 1989? A date five years in the future? It plagued me, this four-part riddle. My, shall we say, precarious situation in the wake of the debacle forced my attention away onto more 
pressing concerns. Nevertheless, I never forgot the mystery of those four words. So you can imagine my surprise when, in midsummer of 1989, who should show up again but our young astrophysicist? Grishin gave a nod in Sasha's direction. Best of all, he came to us, arrived on our doorstep, so to speak, petitioning for access to the secret archives of Kulik's second Tunguska expedition. Our interviews with Sasha during the assassination inquiry must have started something stirring in him. He had already been working on black hole formation in the very early universe, you see. Grishin smiled indulgently, as if no more ridiculous waste of time could possibly be imagined. And, with the clue of the inscription to go on, had become increasingly convinced of something called the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis. Jackson-Ryan, sure, Knox was getting tired of listening, but with the added twist that the thing's still down there. Precisely. Grecian didn't bat an eye at Knox's recognition of the two astrophysicists' names. Sasha thought he found a way to investigate one of his precious primordial objects at first hand, but he needed our authorization to view Kulik's sequestered archives. Grecian chuckled. Suddenly, after a lapse of five years, all the pieces of the puzzle had fallen into my hand. Here was a cosmologist asking our support for research into Tunguska, all of this in July of 1989. What did you do? Knox asked. Do? Grishin laughed outright. What do you think I did? I had him arrested, of course. Then he turned to Sasha and, as if to say it was all in fun, gave him a big grin. It was all Sasha could do to smile in return. The images now chasing one another across the data wall weren't making it any easier. A montage of his younger self, mere hapless junior astrophysics professor that he'd been, traversing the stations of KGB in-processing. Handcuffed, strip-searched, peering out at the camera through a tiny grate in a massive ochre door. Regrettably, Grecian was saying, we could turn up nothing to tie our young friend to the Andropov affair. Still, just to be on the safe side, we held on to him. Sasha wiped suddenly sweaty palms against his trouser legs. If Grecian was aware of the effect these reminiscences were having, he gave no sign. Then, one day, he went on, perhaps three or four months after we had first detained him, I received word that Sasha wished to confess, but only to the officer in charge of the investigation. Nominally, that was still myself. Though I had since moved on to other responsibilities, I arranged to have him brought in on the chance that I might, after five long years, wipe the stain of that one egregious failure from my record. But Sasha surprised me. Grishin winked at him winked. He had not come to confess to anything, you see, but rather to tell me. Actually, Sasha, you tell it better than I. Sasha swallowed the lump in his throat and dutifully picked up his cue. 
Well, yes. What else had I to do for all those months, after all, but think? And my interrogator's questions told me more, I fear, than my answers told them. In my cell at night, long after lights out, I would puzzle over what I knew of the affair, over why, in particular, an assassin would think to write an endorsement of cosmological research on his murder weapon. Until finally, there came a day when I had it all worked out. Most of it, anyway, Grecian reminded him. We still do not know all of it. True, but in any case, near enough for me to ask to talk with Arkasha again. To talk with me indeed, Grecian said. To spin out for me what was perhaps the most fantastic tale ever told in the cellars of the Lubyanka. He gave a brief chuckle. As you will appreciate, comrades, that took some doing. There has been stiff competition for that particular honor over the years. Fantastic! No, Arkasha, Sasha protested. Once all the facts were taken into account, it... It still remained science fiction of the rankest sort. Grecian cut him off. Then he turned to address the council once again. Yet, comrades, I must confess it. That curious interview remained in my mind long after I had had Sasha thrown back in his cell. In the darkening days that followed, as the strength of will that alone had made Russia great crumbled all around us, I found my thoughts turning to it again and again. How differently things might be made to turn out if what Sasha claimed were true. And then I thought, why not make him prove it? A wry smile on his face, Knox listened to the tale of how, six months later, Grecian had had Sasha transferred to a minimum security facility attached to foreign intelligence headquarters in the Yasenova suburb of Moscow. Out there, in the woods, as we called it, Grecian was saying, I could keep a closer eye on our young friend. For his part, Sasha found his new situation far more conducive to research, not to mention more congenial, than his accommodations as a mere detainee had been. Knox shook his head in wonderment. Against all odds, Sasha had once again managed to ingratiate himself with the powers that be. Dale Carnegie's disciple rides again, this time winning friends and influencing people in that self-same state security R&D establishment made infamous by Solzhenitsyn's first circle. Our working relationship, too, Grecian went on, was evolving in those final months of Soviet power. From jailer and prisoner, we were becoming something more like co-workers, even colleagues, if you will. That's just hostage syndrome, Mariana cut in. Long-term captivity creates a dependence on the captor that's easy to mistake for friendship, even love. She caught Grecian's mocking smile and glared back. Don't look for it to happen here any time soon, Grecian. You may call it what you will, Miss Bonaventure. The fact remains, Sasha and I became indispensable to one another. He designing each new experiment, I overcoming all obstacles standing in its way, making it happen. And always, 
our young friend would urge me on to yet greater efforts with the words, It must be true, comrade director, for it has already happened. His voice dropped a register or two. And Sasha was right. Thanks to him, when the end came in 1991, we had a plan in place. A plan to literally turn back the clock. Knox was obscurely pleased to see Grishin pull a handkerchief from his jacket pocket and mop his brow. Thank goodness someone else found this whole business as unsettling as he did. To turn back the clock, Grishin repeated. Yes, but how far? To when? Even as we were assembling the wherewithal to realize the time warp capability itself, a separate study group was already poring over the turning points of recent history, searching for a fulcrum, a single event which, had it gone another way, would yield an outcome out of all proportion to the effort required to alter it. The biggest bang for the buck, Knox volunteered. Grecian ignored him. We examined many such scenarios, weighing each carefully, since it is in the nature of the case that one only gets one chance at changing one's own past. Still, even the most drastic proposals were given their fair hearing. He stared at Karpinski, as if challenging the little man to deny it. At one point, we even went so far as to consider cancelling out Stalin's murder of Kirov back in 1934, in hopes of averting the lamentable episode of the cult of personality altogether. Grecian sighed. Alas, uncertainty effects are said to make the consequences of intervention more indeterminate the further back one goes. The alternative futures begin to multiply beyond the possibility of prediction or control. That was too much for Knox. Translation, you would have liked to undo the horrors of Stalinism, but you couldn't be sure what that drastic a change might have done to your own cushy lifestyles. That is the trouble with you, Mr. Knox. You cast everything in the worst possible light. Try to see things from our perspective. In retrieving the Tunguska cosmic object, my associates and I have saved the world itself from the ultimate catastrophe. Are we not then entitled to promote our own best interests as well? Interests virtually synonymous, I remind you, with the welfare of our nation as a whole? Why do I get the feeling that, for you, saving the world is just a means to an end? Grecian shook his head in irritation. Still, he seemed determined to finish his rambling project report. In the end, and I will not pretend this decision was a matter of indifference to me personally, we elected to negate the assassination of the one man who, had he but lived, could have averted our national tragedy. A man who had the wisdom and the will to guide Russia through her difficult transition to a new information-based communist society. The man who died that February morning twenty years ago with a fragment of the future piercing his heart. Yuri Vladimirovich Andropov. Naturally, who better than the patron saint of state security to ensure the KGB's continued dominance on into the newly revised world order? There was a problem, though. 
Knox felt compelled to talk out of turn again. My own memories of Andropov aren't anywhere near as fond as yours, Grecian. I seem to recall that, between the two of them, he and Ronald Reagan nearly started World War III. Andropov had only held the post of General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party for 15 months before death deposed him, but in his brief hour of strutting and fretting on the international stage, tensions between the superpowers had escalated to the point of spawning a whole grassroots nuclear freeze movement. Those were the days when Soviet MiGs were downing Korean jetliners, when a made-for-TV movie called The Day After could touch off a national epidemic of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Long-nurtured arms control negotiations were crashing and burning left and right, while facile soundbites like Evil Empire and Fascism American Style winged their way back and forth between the hemispheres, catchphrases taking the place of diplomacy, taking the place, indeed, of rational thought of any kind. Grecian seemed to have forgotten all that. He merely smiled patiently at Knox and said, I weary of your cynicism, my friend. You are the sort of fellow who sits on the sidelines and carps while others must act to bring about what they believe in. Oof, low blow. Knox was about to respond in kind when Yuri placed a heavy, admonitory hand on his shoulder. Rule number one of debating the KGB. Always let the KGB win. Even as we must act now, Grecian went on, we go to set matters right at long last. We go to Antipode Station to ensure the future, our future. He rummaged in his desk drawer, withdrew a gleaming object, balanced it on his palm. Sasha tells me the simultaneous existence of these two manifestations violates the conservation of energy principle, or something of that nature. That offhanded shrug again. Knox felt chill. Ripping holes in the fabric of space-time was all in a day's work for the new improved KGB. Grecian looked up. First, we shall expunge from history the senseless atrocity that put an end to the life of our Yuri Vladimirovich on the morning of February 9th, 1984. And then, having done so, we will lock in the new timeline by sending back this. A metallic ring resounded through Naftalis's cabin as Grecian dropped a short stubby cylinder onto the desktop. It rolled to a stop in front of Knox, the inscription facing up. Knowing what it had to say, Knox read it anyway. The Cyrillic letters were crisply, cleanly incised, with no trace of heat warp. Tunguska, Cosmologist, 7-1989, Support. Listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet.